0: We come back together this morning, we continue our study through Paul's letters uh, and working through the lectionary readings. And so we're in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, Uh, just to give you, again, a brief reminder that Lent is a time for for reflection uh, and a time for reflecting on who we are in Christ, It's not really a time to think about all of the ways that you're not as good a person as you'd like to be and perhaps uh, deny yourself something for a little bit of time to feel like you've perhaps given some uh, service to God or paid for uh, a little bit of your weaknesses over this time of Lent. No, it is a time to reflect on the realities of who we are in Christ. And what we saw in Ezekiel's reading is the hope for that time in which God's people would again be cleansed, that they would have a heart that would be faithful to the Lord. And we know that the second fulfillment of that, the first fulfillment being the people of Israel coming back from their Babylonian exile, at least many of them coming back to Jerusalem But the second fulfillment of that great prophecy, of course, comes with Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when the hope and the promise of such a radical transformation of one's heart and being, in fact, for Jesus to begin to use language such as, you must be born again, and you will, as you come to faith and through the work of the Spirit, be completely transformed in Christ. And in the midst of a time where we feel that, we desire it, we know it to be true, and yet we wrestle with it and we desire to see it more and more lived out in our own existence and in the existence of the church, Lent is a time to reflect on who Christ is and who we are in Christ and to know then the opportunity to live more and more in line with who he is. But, of course, that creates a bit of a challenge because, again, as I've already alluded to, guilt is a sneaky thing. And the philosophy of the older brother about how one might earn the favor of a God who stands aloof and judgmental and angry, it just seeps into our minds so easily. It seems to be in the air we breathe. And so I want to reaffirm this morning through the reading of, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, how radically different our reality is, and then perhaps reflect upon it a bit in the sermon. Hear now God's Word. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that this good news of who your son is and what your son has done for us and how you sent him that we might have peace with you would ring true in our hearts again. The hearts you gave us. Lord, may we in ever greater degrees learn to trust our new hearts and our new selves. Lord, we pray that as we enter the time of of preaching, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word. And that anything that is said that is not true or for the benefit of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So there is a temptation uh, in this passage to read those opening verses of, of 16 and 17 and think, yes, okay. So Paul has talked a lot, and I talk a lot, reflecting on Paul, about how the gospel creates a new community. And we no longer see people as Jews and Greeks and slave or free, male or female. But there is a way in which, in Christ, the individual is transformed into this new thing. And the community of faith, therefore, we are not supposed to make judgments on the basis of whether you're young or old as to how useful you may be or your gifts uh, in any numerous areas based on the way you dress or the way you speak. We want to live in a community of faith that transcends those human ways of looking at people's outward self and making judgments about them. So that you don't want to have a church where, you know, again, we don't do this anymore, but I suppose in our society what you do is you give the rich people the back seats and you make the poor people sit forward because, of course, nobody wants to sit towards the front of the church. But however we might rearrange the structures to sort of give honor to those we think may have more benefit to us and to put those folks off to the side who appear to have less value for our ends, whatever those ends But I want to suggest to you this morning that at this point, Paul is not talking about the way we look at one another in those ways, although very important in Paul and in his letters to the Corinthians. I want to contend that at this point, what he is talking about is the way he pastors people. That in the context, Paul has been arguing for his position as an apostle, the value and truth of the gospel that he is preaching over and against those who see both believers differently and the message of the gospel differently. And so this is really about how we see ourselves and how you would want your elders, whom you will elect shortly, to see you. And what God calls us to do as far as how we look at you. And so this morning, what I want to do is to regard people through the lens of the gospel in our pastoral care, first by reaffirming the great doctrine of justification, right? And so for our kids, hopefully some of them are learning their catechism, justification is an act of God's free will where the work of Christ is imparted to us, not by any righteousness in and of ourselves, It is a free gift, and it is complete, and it is full. So we'll look at justification, this great doctrine, and then we're going to look at sanctification, which is not an act of God's declaration, but a work of God through the Spirit in the believer's life. So first, justification. Well, where do we see this? Well, again, it's it's all over the text, but certainly verse 17, uh, you are a new creation. A new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. That is not by your efforts. Again, Nicodemus was right. How can a man be born again? How on earth can I be born again? Well, you can't do it to yourself. It must be done for you and to you by God himself. And in the same way, those things that are dead must be made alive. There is no ability to regenerate oneself. And because of the plague of sin and death and the rebellion of of humanity, we were in a position where things had to be done for us. There was no way in which God could have simply said, and this is what most of the Old Testament shows, as well as the New Testament, is that if God shows up and tells us what to do, we say, that's a lovely idea, but I have several of my own. And I think I will pursue my own ideas, but thank you so much for coming by and getting me out of Egypt. But I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. And the same is true in the New Testament. The temptation, the challenge, even in the very presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to see him through a different lens. A lens simply of my own agenda and ability. It takes a new creation, And so Paul says this is what has happened. There is a new creation and that there has been reconciliation. There is a reality because of sin and death that we were at war with God. It's not a neutral position. There is no detente. And God had to reconcile those who were far away. Younger brothers and older brothers. To a place of peace with Him. And then verse 19 continues, not counting our sins against us. Now think about that for a second. What does that tell us about God's understanding of forgiveness? We pray every week that God would forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. There is something radical about the nature of forgiveness That these new human beings, these new creatures have a capacity in line with who they are in Christ to function in a new way that not only enjoys reconciliation with God, but according to Paul, our enjoying reconciliation with God is going to have the implication of being peacemakers and those who reconcile the world by the work of the Spirit in our presence. Forgiveness then becomes a means by which God's people interact. And Paul, as their pastor, is stressing the reality of who they are. Who they are in Christ, making some of the most profound and strongest statements of a new identity in all of the New Testament. He who had no sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us. The starkness, the power of that statement, the clarity, even if I don't understand all of Paul's syntax and all of Paul's grammar, that statement in and of itself tells me of a different kind of God. Not a God who simply tells me that I'm wrong and wonders if I can repair myself but a God who knew not evil became subject to its consequences that I might know his life and actually be evidence of his rightness, his righteousness. That's the power of the forgiveness of these new creations. It is the air in which we were born. The, the, the nature, the ethos, the character, the home in which we are reborn is a character of a home that is built on reconciliation and not counting one's sins against us. Which, of course, we know. I was at a conversation earlier this week and uh, things got a little sideways in the conversation because it was clear that unconsciously one of the folks in the room had a very long record and list of all of the ways in which they'd been wronged or they thought they were wronged. They had kept a long score sheet. It was not 18 holes of golf, it was 36. There was no way to make progress as long as that litany, that scorecard was on the table. Because there was no way for the one who apparently, either consciously or unconsciously, had wounded their brother to make up for all of those transgressions to right all of the wrongs that they had done to this person. There had to be forgiveness. And that is borne by the one who forgives. Justification is an act of forgiveness where God takes the weight of your sin, my sin, not in a quid pro quo, not in some way in which the scales even out, but the reality that the one who had no sin became sin. That was not a fair exchange. And oftentimes when we extend forgiveness, whether you are a young person forgiving a sibling or an older person forgiving a friend or a husband and wife forgiving each other, we know it always costs something to truly let go of a hurt or a wrong. But keeping score is not a part of the new creation. It's not a part of the creature that we were created to be. And then lastly in verse 21 on the realities of justification. No sin to be sin for us, for our sake. We are new creatures, not simply for our own benefit, but for the sake of others. Christ did this for you, for your sake. And it becomes then an extension of justification that we are here for the sake of one another. And we know this because God did it for your sake. He became one willing to endure all of the unrighteousness of you and me so that we might know the reconciliation we have with God. And so that's how Paul, the pastor, sees his people. Dearly purchased, loved individuals who have become new creations in Christ. And then the work starts. Because according to Paul, if we go back a little bit further in the chapter, verse 9, which isn't a part of your text, but if you have your Bible you can double check and and I encourage you to look at it. But Paul says he does everything to please him that part of the implication of being this new creation is that instead of doing everything to please me, which is the orientation of a dead and self-serving heart, but when I get a new heart, the orientation is actually to see and feel the delight of my Heavenly Father. And I do things that He might be pleased, not simply me. And if I know who I am in Christ, chances are, I will also know great joy and peace as I live according to to my justification, this new identity, this new creatureliness that I have. And so we enter in a time of sanctification, which is becoming more and more like what we really are. It's the already not yet that our scholars talk to us about. You are already justified, and yet there is a way in which this side of glory, we don't know what it is like. It is very much like the analogy. We don't know what it's like. What it is like is like a child learning to walk with its new legs. If you've been reborn, if you have a new body, if we all become children again, how many things do we need to learn how to do with our hands and our feet and our minds and our eyes and our mouth? Of course, we have a whole new life to learn. To grow up into that body. That is the process of sanctification. And according to Paul... It starts with Paul not regarding anybody who has confessed Christ and been baptized according to the flesh. It's why he has expectations on them. It's why he challenges them to be generous in the next chapter to help the people in Jerusalem. Why? Because as new creatures, I assume you now understand how your money works, not in line with the human idea, but in line with what it is to be co-heirs with Christ. Don't tell me I never gave you a goat. Everything I have is yours. And because of that, there's some people starving in Jerusalem, and we should really go help them. Well, what will that cost me? It'll cost you something. But of course, as a new creation, I already know and trust that you have a different view of money than you did before you were a believer. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Ah, but it's not your old body, it's your new body. And in line with that, here's what sexual purity looks like. Here's the way your body was designed to enjoy another human being. There is a reality to that. Well, don't tell me what to do. Well, I, I'm not because I'm telling you about your new body. Because you are a new creation. I'm not saying you don't feel certain uh, longings for your funds or f- certain longings for uh, your the people that you're attracted to, whether there's several or one. But that's not who you are now. I'm speaking to the child learning to hold something new in its hand, to learn to paint again, to stand, to walk I, your pastors, your elders, God's word, the community of faith gathered around are here absolutely to help you know what it is to be this new creation. Because if your new creation is really like your old creation, just with, as I saw on a sign recently, uh, that Jesus is an insurance policy, if that's our view of Jesus as an insurance policy, then one wouldn't imagine that there's going to be a whole lot of change in my life now. It cashes in when I'm dead. But see, the problem was, the beauty of, of the Scripture is that you were dead. Now you're not dead because you're alive in Christ. So how will you live as living beings in Christ? Different the way you did when you were dead. And Paul saying, I don't see you as dead beings anymore. I see you as those in the flesh, which is why I can say, stop looking at everybody as if they're Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, because that's the way dead people think. And I couldn't imagine you thinking any differently if you were still dead. But because you're not dead, there's a greater expectation, there's a different expectation. I bother talking to you because you are not dead. I write you this letter and plead with you because you're not dead. You can actually understand a kingdom ethic that is different because you're not dead. Because you're a new creation. Don't press against me against my anger, my anxiety, my fears. Fill in the blank of those things which are a part of death that we very often are reticent to share with our brothers and sisters, let alone our pastors and our elders, in such a way that we might see those anxieties and fears and angers and real pain and the fact that we've been victims and the fact that we need to move on from those places, but we don't know how, and we're stuck in them in those fears, and we say to ourselves, there's nothing I can do, it's just the way I am. Dear brothers and sisters, there's no way that Paul would look at you and say, you're right. He would say, that was true. But you're now free. You're a new creation. And those things can and will have less and less hold of you because Christ has hold of you. And you can be free Even freer, this side of glory, you don't have to long for death to solve your anger problem. You don't have to long for death to stop being a victim of what happened to you and plagued by those thoughts and doubts. You don't have to long for death because you're alive in Christ now. I no longer regard you as dead. The old has passed away, verse 17. Now to be gentle and kind and Paul always starts his letters saying and reaffirming his love and more importantly Christ's love and excitement over every believer. I thank God for you. I pray for you. The Lord delights in you. And here are further implications of what it means to be new creations. We do things differently. As you vote after worship as you encourage your elders and your pastor, as you engage with us. Know that we desire to see you increasingly not in the flesh, but in the reality of a heavenly body, one that is made alive in Christ that will never perish. Who you truly are, all of us are blind to who we truly are because the pain and the realities of this world, the seductions and joys and temporary pleasures of this world seek to confuse us as to who we really are. And it is a calling of God's people gathered together and those called to lead you to see you as who you are in Christ and not to exhort you out of their own desires to be different, but in our best moments to encourage you as to who you are in Christ and the freedom that you enjoy. Not to shame you, not to abuse you, not to hold it over your head or to suggest that somehow we might be better than you, but simply to say, who are you in Christ? And how can we encourage that in one another? When God's people do that, it is not just an inward transformation of peace. But it is the outward evidences of those generosities where Paul both addresses the spirit and the physical realities of the church in ministering to one another. It is a holistic transformation when the kingdom of God comes because it was always meant to be a spiritual and a physical reality. To try and do one without the other is to live not in line with who Christ is, but to do both together is to recognize what these new bodies are truly capable of doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful. Lord, it is impossible to imagine any transformation without your Spirit filling us and giving us the ability, the longing, the desire, the courage, and the strength. Lord, may nothing in this sermon be understood to be an exhortation to personal betterment apart from the work of Christ in each heart. We can do nothing without you, but all things are possible in you. And we pray for that, Lord. We pray that all things would be possible, and that we would see it in our own lives, in our community, in our nation, and in our world, of what happens when we are truly new creations in you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.